This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by the new Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 Sport Bike Tire and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Renthal Street. From race to adventure, custom to naked, look no further than Renthal Street for handlebars, clip-ons, chains and sprockets. So, after a week in Italy, I'm going to jump to a conclusion that Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler are pretty much tiramisu's masked as men at this stage. David Emmett, you're probably absolutely disgusted at the volume of tiramisu pictures, desserts, milky coffees that you saw from Italy. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the three of you just can't stand the sight of each other at this point. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's that, that's not something which has changed in the past uh, sort of five years or so. So uh, why now? But um, I'm just uh, I'm just disappointed in the lack of variety of, of desserts which they pick because it, it does seem as if they eat at least 17 tiramisus every day well that's where you're wrong dave that's the glory of tiramisu because there's so many different varieties on how it's made but to be honest i'm a little bit wary of the uh, weary i should say of the pizzas uh you know i wouldn't mind if i didn't see another pizza for uh, a good while but then heading back to italy and also to bologna airport on friday for the motocross and nations I, I fear my chances are limited neil i can imagine that you are the exact opposite to adam in that regard i'd say you had another pizza for your lunch today exactly yeah pizza's currently in the oven as well so i might nip out um 20 minutes into this podcast if you don't mind just to, to go and get that one as well uh wouldn't want to have an afternoon without pizza um so yes and i'm kind of curious that you know if, if you sort of followed our whatsapp conversations you would almost think that adam and i don't even really like tiramisu it's just that we order it so we can take photos of it and send them to david you would almost think that but maybe not quite i'll tell you what i, I am always impressed at the range of vessels in which it gets served um the uh, the, the little coffee uh, machine thing was uh, quite entertaining i did like that even though it was um c- containing a substance which is completely vile and should be made illegal in all um, 157 nations around uh, around the globe. Dave's obviously gotten rid of quite a few countries as well now. Obviously enough, guys, there was a there was a, a little issue before the tiramisu. That tended to be action in the MotoGP World Championship and from Mizano, and uh, we were able to see Paco Bagnaia win that race from Fabio Quattararo and uh, Ineo Bastianini up on the podium. So this was a real turn up for the books all the way through the weekend. So I'm going to kick off the podcast with, as usual, our moments of the weekend. So Neil, I'm going to start with you. What was your moment of the weekend? My moment of the weekend, Steve, was uh, the Moto E uh, title decider, the second race on Sunday, um, because it was, uh, I mean, it was pretty epic, pretty dramatic. Um, there's not many times that you can list um, the, the final lap of the final championship, or sorry, the final race of the championship in which the two title contenders have come together and actually one has knocked on the other one off. Um, but I thought um, both of the, the Moto E races in, in Mizano were really good, really interesting. We had the guys in the championship fighting each other for the for the wins in both races in both races, um, and I mean I kind of think that it might have just turned out in the right way. We might talk about this a little bit more uh, in our Model Two and Model Three show uh, later in the week, um, but I think it was uh, it was it was the thing that Model E needs because I feel that maybe he had just lost a little bit of something this year. I didn't get the impression that it was attracting that much interest, but with a final like that. Um, I think it's exactly what model we needed for the controversy. Yeah, Neil, I'm just going to take you up on some of that now. We'll obviously talk about it a little bit more in, in later in the week in the Moto2 and Moto3 show, but we saw changes to the qualifying this weekend. We saw obviously a big battle at the front between Agador and uh, Jordi Torres. And 
you know, it, it was it was spicy. It went all the way down to the wire and it's what you need whenever you've got a championship decider for, at the end of the day, a World Cup like this where people need to be given a reason to be excited about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, they've kind of had some changes to, some minor changes to the, the kind of the, basically the bikes this year, but nothing too crazy. I think there are changes incoming for 2022 to take Model, Model E uh, into the next step. And then there's further changes uh, to be announced for 2023. So this is going to be something that will be, I think, a part of MotoGP, uh, maybe even in an expanded way um, next year and then further years. So, yeah, it's not going away. In a way, it reminds me a bit of, of the World Superbikes. World Superbike Championship is getting... I mean, I'm really looking forward to listening to you and Gordo uh, talk about this on the Superbike Show, Steve, because the World Superbike Championship is is really sort of livening up as well. We've had some really good, exciting racing with Jonathan Ray and, and uh, Topic Razgatlioglu going backwards and forwards, and that was just what Superbike needed. And this sort of incident between Egerton and Torres was also... Yeah, it was just what, uh, just what Moto E needed. I am. I mean, I'm a fan of Moto E, and I think it's clear that it's not going anywhere. I think, you know, the, the competition is just going to advance as the technology does. But for me, the biggest limiting factor is they're all on the same bikes when it's a sector of, of the automotive industry that is, you know, experiencing real innovation. I think, you know, okay, you have the possibility, and Neil and I were discussing this over the Mizano week, weekend, that uh, a manufacturer like Honda could sweep through with the Mujan project and maybe dominate the races. But then I think that sets, you know, a bar of competition. Then it's up to other manufacturers and other brands to also show off their, uh, you know, their, their advancements with e-bike technology to try and catch them. I mean, that's really what Grand Prix, especially prototype racing, should be all about. Should be about entertainment, Adam, and about close racing, and I think uh, that's what um, the people behind Moto E have set out to do in the first couple of years because they know that there isn't um, the interest just yet from manufacturers that want to get involved. Um, so what I think they're doing is they're they're setting a platform basically which is entertaining and which might attract fans and dismiss some of the naysayers that um, obviously exist regarding electric racing, um, and, and basically have that sort of structure in place for when manufacturers are interested and have developed the technology to take part in it. I don't know, Neil, I kind of disagree with you. Even at the top of the show, I'm sorry to uh, launch into a debate right away, but, you know, I, th I think it, it could be a place for some really cool shit, you know, so really get the attention of the public. I mean, let's be honest, if you want to introduce new people to motorcycle racing, it's not going to be via Moto E, is it? It's going to be via the, the fire-breathing beasts that are in MotoGP. So the Moto E is almost like for the refined area of the purists. Maybe you can get mainstream news coverage by saying, look at our green sustainable bikes. But, you know, that should be the class where you you show off, you know, like I said, that the latest kind of ideas in, in two-wheeled automotive technology. I think from the TT Zero race, you had something like that with the Mugen bikes there. And any person I spoke to watching that said that it was just a bit of a farce because you had two competitive bikes and then five other bikes a minute or two minutes behind. Yeah, but the like, TT no the is an animal by itself, isn't it? I mean, you know, the, the course is as much as a competitor as, as, as the people on the track. So it's... Um... The lesson of um, the CRT era in MotoGP is that um, if you have unlimited technology, uh, you get single winners because, you know, CRTs were brought in because... Uh, manufacturers were leaving MotoGP, and you know it was a it was it was Honda versus Yamaha, and there was four people who could win a race. Um, we've seen this before through history. We've seen it in the 1960s when Honda came in with their 
absolutely amazing motorcycles. You know, a five cylinder was it a five cylinder one two five and a V and a and a six cylinder two fifty. No one else could afford to make that kind of technology. Um, that's the danger. The danger is that there is one dominant manufacturer who throws a lot of money at it and uh, just sort of cleans up and scares the the other manufacturers away. So you need a very level playing field, and I don't think we understand the technology enough about um, motorcycles, about uh, about electric motorcycles, to be able to build a really good, solid uh, balancing platform. Because you know, in the end, a lot of it is just about sort of battery capacity and how you manage the battery capacity, uh, and that becomes very, very difficult. But I mean, I understand, I, I agree in theory with Adam, but Neil is completely right. I have to say, having gone to the TT for years when TT Zero was there, it was absolute shite. And it's the last thing I want to see in a Grand Prix class as well, because it was so clear just where the budget had gone. Mugen were guaranteed their wins. Everyone else was a real half-hearted effort. Bodwee's not perfect, but it is what it is. And it's there to be a basically a control class. And if you're able to do that, do that. And then wait and see what happens long term. But I think there's nothing wrong with having it there just as that single entity at the start. Maybe just to close this, because I can see I'm being ganged up on, um, you know, I mean, the, the TT is a far different prospect to Moto E, where you, you've just created another clone class, where you're almost showing off the the kind of level of, with full respect, B and C level riders, rather than the technology itself. You know, I think there's a, as Dave mentioned, you don't want to get to a point where one manufacturer is streaking ahead, but I think Moto E clearly, you know, is nowhere near that kind of level yet. Maybe you could reassess it after five years and bring in various levels of control, like has been done, to every Grand pre-category since but i think you know you have to allow a competition to breathe and to really uh for tech engineers and technicians to to express themselves uh you know and i don't think oh, okay mate neil's got a point with the entertainment package oh it's cynical it's very hard for me to admit that but you know it's uh i think you know it's, it's something equally wonderful about seeing some obscure swiss manufacturer coming in and showing off something that's maybe light years ahead of uh, other things in the paddock well, I would have to say as well, I'd like I do see where you're coming from on that because I love looking back at the original years of Moto Two whenever you had, you know, fifteen manufacturers on the grid, but it always ends up being where everyone just gravitates towards whatever's competitive as well, and you could end up having it where a couple of years of Moto E might have it where there's a lot of variety, but gradually that would all change as well. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's exactly the history of all of these things. Race teams are incredibly conservative. Riders want whatever's going to win. So you will end up with basically, you know, one brand. Uh, the rest of them have, cha- have, uh, have been chased away. Um, and I don't think the technology is ripe yet, but um, uh, it, it's something for the future. Well, let's move on anyway to the next moment of the weekend. David, what about you? My moment of the weekend was the last corner. Um, we actually had some really good battles for, for the end, but the, the, the one for me was um, uh, Mark Marquez and Juan Mir uh, mugging Jack Miller in the in those last couple of corners. Uh, we didn't quite see it, but I think it was really, really uh, significant. Uh, Jack Miller got off to a good start and then sort of went backwards a bit, but the, the fact that Mark Marquez uh, finished fourth 
at a right-hand track, which is very, very demanding physically. Uh, I, I think that that bodes well for him. Left-handers, you know, Aragon, uh, uh, lots of left-handers, so he could fight. He could he could rest his right his right shoulder a little. Um, uh, obviously, Saxon Ring, all left-handers, and so and no real, really hard physical th- things on the on the right-hand side, so he didn't have to worry about that. The uh, Araga or Misano is very different. Misano was going to be a really, really tough race, and the fact that he came through that, finished fourth, he thought he was going to finish fifth or sixth. Um, I, I think that is a positive for him. Um, and it was also interesting that they spoke, all of the Honda riders spoke, uh, riders spoke really clearly about the problem with the Honda right now. No rear grip or a lack of, a real rack, lack of acceleration. And Takanakagami was very interesting talking about um, watching the ride height devices of other bikes um, that they seem to drop lower. And he thinks that if they can get a, a improve the right high device, they can improve their acceleration as well, put more gra- power to the ground without getting m- uh, more wheelie. Um, so, yeah, I think it was, I think that may prove to be a, a pivotal moment. Obviously, as we're speaking, there's a test going on in Mizano. Um, uh, I, I think that is going to be important for the future as well. And Adam, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? Uh, well, I mean, I, I like the fact that we had another slow burn MotoGP race where it kind of kicked off in the last couple of laps. Full credit to Fabio Quattararo for really trying to win uh, the Grand Prix, um, especially when we had the spectre of rainfall. I mean, sitting in the media center, the clouds seemed to be getting darker, but, you know, by the minute and the rain didn't arrive until the early evening. Um, but I, you know, having sort of almost banged my hand on the desk for a technical innovation in, in MotoGP, um, I'm going to pick something altogether far more syrupy. And I have to say, I quite like the fact that, you know, Mark Marquez met a junior fan and the situation was, uh, juice very juicily ironic in every sort of sense because this young five-year-old Italian called Valentino, uh, had written apparently Mark uh, an email through his um, his official fan club or website or whatever saying he was a big fan and Mark has went outside to meet him and gave him some knee sliders. Uh, his mum is a big Valentino Rossi fan, um, but this this kid Valentino is a Mark Marquez fan, and just the way it was uh, it, it was a nice episode you know of uh, the arguably well the best rider in the series meeting one of the fans and I thought it was uh, you know it just showed some of the emotional and the human side of racing and the thing is. You know, it's kind of split opinion from people that I've spoken to about it because some people tended to think it was, again, quite a nice gesture and quite something quite sincere. But then the other, you know, view is that it seemed almost manipulative and very, you know, highly staged and, you know, quite artificial, uh, which is the height of cynicism, if you like. So I'm going to jump on the other side and say I really quite liked it. And the thing is, having you know, interviewed Mark a couple of times and, um, you know, seeing his demeanor and his the way he is in the paddock, that's what he's like. I mean, he's one of the one of the few riders that always stops for fans. Uh, at the weekend, he did it while you know everyone was waiting for him in safety commission. He parked his uh, scooter outside the Dorner office and was, you know, taking selfies with the fans, meeting the fans. That's that's the kind of guy he is. So I thought it was uh, quite touching. Dave, I'm going to ask you a quick question about that, obviously, because Adam's mentioned there about uh, some people were quite cynical about it. But I want to ask you, Dave, whether or not you're more sickened by the tiramisu pictures that Adam's been sending you, or the fact that Adam's gone all soppy now in the Paddock Pass podcast. Days, uh, well, the you know the, the silver fox has got a heart of gold. We know that. Um, one interesting thing, uh, Mum 
big Valentino fan, uh, a kid, a big Mar- Marcus fan. I think that tells you a lot about uh, the state of MotoGP than that it's a generational thing. I think it's great that uh, once again, Adam is recording this podcast with a giant Taylor Swift fo- po- uh, poster behind them as well. So it's just it's just good to see Adam. It warms the heart. I'm going to pick as my moment of the weekend, and this is probably one that uh, Yamaha won't be uh, too too happy that I'm picking as my moment. I'm picking Yamaha and their, their speed blocks livery in World SBK and the Endurance World Championship this week as well, because the bikes turned out and they were they were beautiful white and white and red uh, Yamaha color scheme always looks fantastic and then as the races got underway Superbikes was on first and uh, Garrett Gerloff crashes on the way to the siding lap Locatelli has a real struggle during race one Toprak has a technical problem out of the race lead the endurance race starts with the ball door and Yamaha are looking quite good in this race and then suddenly Yart hit trouble and it's just the biggest disaster imaginable. And it goes once again to show you should never have one-off liveries. You should never have one-off leathers because it always ends this way. I seem to recall that um, Valentino Rossi had a one-off livery on his bike at Valencia. And um, it was such a disaster that he said that he would never do it again. And I think they had to eventually, there was one year where they had to literally twist his arm to make him do a special livery at, um, uh, at Valencia. But, it, you know, it went totally against the grain. Um, but that, w- that was like one track. He was, he was okay at other places. That was fine. I think there was a special, um, there was a special livery at Assen for Fiat, I remember, one year. Um, but, yeah, yes, they're all, it's always a risk. But the bikes looked absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I remember he did it at uh, Mugello as well in, what, 01 and the 500 Honda, and he crashed and then still did his celebrations afterwards. So after that, he said, you know, these one-off things, you know, you, you need to be pretty careful about them. And then it was definitely a case of, fool me once, shame on me. And uh, for uh, Rossi later on, he learned his lesson. Yamaha clearly didn't, though, but uh, it definitely made for a few few rice smiles around uh, the paddocks over the course of this weekend, I think. Hang on, I get banter for, you know, choosing a nice, you know, lovely moment of fan interaction and you for your moment of the weekend you pick a set of stickers that we didn't even see in in the grand prix well i'll be honest adam i didn't even see the grand prix yet either so uh, i can't pick anything from the grand prix weekend i'm just back from from catalonia so it's a it's a struggle for me to pick anything from the from the moto gp weekend except for the tiramisu pictures to be honest and it's just lovely to see the behind the cynical layers that you see on on top there is a heart underneath it all well, I'll tell you what, we're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast just so that all of us can, can repair our broken relationship with one another. But when we come back, maybe by that stage, I'll have actually sat down and watched some of the Grand Prix and we'll know something to ask you about from it. The Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 is the newest addition to the popular Diablo Rosso family and is specifically designed for sport bike, hyper-naked, and crossover motorcycles. Giving riders a superior level of grip, the Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 gives precise feedback and control in both wet and dry conditions, raising the benchmark for high-performance sport tires on the road. Available in a wide range of sizes, the Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 is the culmination of nearly 20 years of testing and R&D in the factory, on the roads, and on the track with World Superbike. Visit your local dealer or online retailer and pick up a set today. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. So we're looking back at the Mizano Grand Prix weekend. And uh, David, I'm going to kick it off with you. What was uh, your big topic and your big talking point from the San Marino Grand Prix? Um, My big talking point was 
the start, really, Pekka Banyaya's start. I didn't see anything at the, the you know, the first time of, of watching, but later on, it looked like um, Pekka Banya might have jumped the start. So I went back and had a look, and it does look like he moved from the cameras that we can see. So I emailed Mike Webb, a race director, and he kindly replied and explained that um, they have side cameras. I think we've seen this from uh, the, the time that Cal Crutchlow jumped the start as well. They have side cameras and they have dedicated staff whose job his only job is to watch the uh, start to check to see if there's any movement. And it is, the, the rules are no movement is allowed except a very small movement and a stop before you go. Uh, but in the end, it's also down to the uh, staff to actually judge whether any advantage was gained. And I think... Uh, I think it's fairly clear. You can argue that no no advantage was gained because literally if he moved before the lights, it was, um, you know, perhaps a few hundredths of a second uh, uh, advantage. Uh, he got into... There were other riders on the grid who actually got a better start than him. He got into the corner first, but he didn't get into the... Or, you know, into first turn... Into the first corner first, but he didn't get in with a huge advantage. Um, and it didn't make any any real difference to the outcome of the race because, you know, Fabio Quartararo hunted him down later on, but Fabio Quartararo lost all of his time battling Jorge Martin and then uh, battling uh, Jack Miller and then also running off track when Jack Miller uh, went completely wide at, um, uh, at turn 11. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, in the end, it didn't make any difference, but it made it, it was also interesting because that was... Peko's strategy. The strategy was to get a good start and to go from the start because he chose the soft tyre to do exactly that, to try to get away. Um, Fabio Quartararo went for the... Uh, he went for the medium, which wasn't going to be as quick from the start but he knew he had the pace at the end and that's what turned it into such a fascinating contest right at the end because we had a fantastic last lap where Quartararo finally caught he closed down I think three seconds in about uh, in about six or seven laps um, and really made a huge huge difference uh, uh, in that and it looked like he might be able to get past um, but Banyaya put up a fantastic defence in those last uh, in, in those last couple of corners um, Quartararo realised oh, alright this is going to be too difficult I'm not going to risk uh, it, it would have had to take too much of a risk to get past uh, and that turned into the battle of the championship and it's also really really nicely laid the ground for the remaining four rounds for the rest of the championship I am um, you know it's uh when it comes to the, if you look at the video again of like Pecco making his start, it's it's almost like he lunges into it a little bit. There's a kind of there's a sort of kind of body motion, if you like. I do wonder if there's any kind of potential room for interpretation when it comes to race starts. I mean, kind of like we see a little bit in motocross. I mean, especially this year, um, the defending world champion HRC's Tim Geiser has had in certain races this technique where he's almost stood full up on the motorcycle coming out of the gate to really drive as you know as much weight and force as he can to to both wheels and that transition from the metal grill into the dirt. Uh, you know, and there are kind of, you know, over the years, we've seen techniques where riders, as we mentioned in the note show over the weekend, um, the gate used to be made of dirt and the riders would dig out a little rut 
Um, some of them would, you know, build like a little ramp up to the top of the gate itself. So the bike was already going up and over the metalwork to, you know, again, aid the best chances towards a whole shot. Um, some riders would build a little ramp towards the, the, the end of the rut. So the, the bike was almost seesawing in between. Um, you know, there was a rider, a Spaniard called Jose Butron, who used to roll the bike backwards and then full throttle forwards and just that extra little gain of momentum. I remember a Dutch rider, Mark de Ruver, used to try it as well. Um, was just like helping, I don't know, the inertia, I guess, uh, of the bike going forward. I mean, we're talking, you know, as, as your Dave, your Valiant attempts to create a GIF on Twitter. Um, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, minuscule minor details, but it seems to be, uh, a dividing factor at the moment in MotoGP if you talk to any of the technicians or the riders. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the start has become incredibly important also just because um, of these start devices, these whole shot devices. Um, it's interesting to see, like, they've restricted technology. They have uh, uh, banned the use of electronics or, you know, restricted the use of electronics to uh, allow people to get better stars. Normally what would happen is, you know, uh, HRC and Yamaha would uh, open up a, um, uh, a couple of busloads of software engineers and, and let them play around with software engine management strategies to get the drive to figure out how exactly how to get that drive. They can't do that. They're stuck with the spec electronics. So they've got to find other ways uh, around it. And Ducati have been brilliant at this. Uh, and everyone else has been forced to follow. Um, so, yes, yeah, starting is really important. I think it, it's an interesting point about what you say about motocross because you can see that, uh, you know, Banyai is sort of rolls his body forward. It looks like the bike moves. Diffi difficult to see, especially from that angle. Obviously, like I say, the, the there are cameras on every row at every bike looking at you know whether the bike actually moves or not before the uh, uh, before the start goes out but in the end it's down to these dedicated officials to make a call of yes they move yes rider a moved and yes they it was a it was a clear violation if there is any doubt if it's questionable, then the rider is always given the benefit of the doubt. Um, uh, so, yeah, this, this is one of these things. But I, I do wonder, as you say, I wonder if there's a way that they're using their body to, you know, pro propel the bike or, or help the bike get off the line along with the uh, whole shot device. And I also wonder how much is uh, um, uh, how much has changed. Um, between the whole shot device and not having the whole shot device and, where, and whether, you know, people's body position, that has changed people's body positions as well. Well, the KTM, KTM always claimed that, you know, the whole shot device didn't really bring any kind of benefit. I mean, they're all using them now. Maybe it's just a case of, uh, you know, I, everybody else has it. We have to have it as well. But, the, you know, there's two factors. I mean, as Neil's reminded us in, in shows over the last year, MotoGP has been setting, um, you know, quite a few records for the closest race finishes um, you know, of all time. Um, there's also the fact that Misano seems to be a particularly tricky track for passing. Uh, a couple of riders mentioned this in their debriefs, but then you have a rider like Miguel Oliveira who said that he didn't feel Misano was, you know, uh, any harder than any other circuit for overtaking. So it's a, a bit of a mixed bag of opinions, but they are two reasons why manufacturers are getting equally or getting tremendously anxious about starts and trying to find some sort of advantage. Yeah, I mean, it's the, it's about marginal gains. So the closer the field gets, um, the more important, you know, tenths and hundredths of seconds uh, become. If you are, um, you know, if the top 10 is separated by a few seconds, then 
you really need to be looking for every last hundredth to make a to make the difference. If the top ten are separated by fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty seconds, um, uh, then really the cost benefit of seeking out that last hundredth is much much lower. You know, the rider can actually find a tenth quicker than uh, or more easily than than, than the engineers. Um, but the yeah. The, because everything is so close, you have to get everything absolutely spot on. It's getting more and more and more about, you know, getting every specific detail just right every race. Just uh, looking at the race itself, moving on from the, the start, I'm trying to, I spent a good part of, of yesterday and Sunday evening trying to think about who was the probably the most content out of Peko Bagnaia and uh, Fabio Portamaro after Sunday's race. I mean... In some respects, you would say that um, you know Peko's won his second race and he beat managed to save Quattro off um, and did a brilliant defensive job in the last couple of laps. Therefore, he has to obviously be the, the happier man. He's got some great momentum behind him now going into the final four races. But then there was something in Fabio's performance, the way that he was risking everything to close the three-second gap when he could have just stayed in second and collected 20 points in a safe, kind of measured way there was something in the way that he was kind of frantically closing that gap down and trying to put his his uh his rival under all that pressure uh which makes me think that you know he might um consider that because he was essentially one yamaha going alone against as you mentioned dave three ducatis of miller martin and, and peckle um and he you know beat two of them quite comfortably beat three of them quite comfortably actually when you factor in the near bastianini um, but he was coming from 12th on the grid, so that is slightly different. Um, but I think this was just a it was a race where, where both of the top two could really sit back and and be appreciative of just how how brilliantly they had ridden. Yeah, and uh, Fabio said in the press conference that you know it was maybe his best race in MotoGP because despite not winning, because he did. Put every, he rode a perfect race, you know. Put everything on the line, um, uh, did his best, and uh, again, winning champ. We've talked a, bit, a lot about what it takes to win a championship. Uh, that ambition and drive to try to, to do everything, um, to do everything you can, is also one of these really, really important factors. Why has Mark been so successful throughout his career? Because he wanted it more than anyone else. Same with Valentino Rossi. Valentino Rossi wanted it more than ever anyone else. And Fabio seems to be right at that point right now. I think uh, Pekka Bagnaia is going to get that at some point, um, but he hasn't won enough races to uh, uh, to make it. And also, I think you know Fabio can smell the championship and he took a big step closer to the championship despite finishing second. Well, let's just look at about that as well then Dave obviously because over the last couple of rounds Peck has won both races he's pulled back over 30 points on Fabio but this was a, a big moment for Fabio considering it had been a bit of a tricky weekend at times weather conditions working against him could the Yamaha work in the in the wet there was a lot of factors this weekend that could easily have led a rider to lose their head yeah absolutely and he didn't and he stayed calm you know even when uh, like we said there were spots of rain I can imagine how he must have felt if spots of rain, if he noticed spots of rain on his uh, visor, knowing that the bike is just terrible in the uh, w when it gets wet. He stayed, he stayed calm, and he kept pushing, and he came through. And I think that was it was a really impressive performance. 
Also, you saw that um, I think Simon Crayford spoke to Massimo Marigali of Yamaha after the race, and he said that they had done their calculations with regards to the tyre. Peko was obviously using the soft rear, Fabio the medium, and Yamaha had noticed that there was a drop-off with about 10 laps to go, and it does take a, a tremendous amount of self-assurance and calmness and patience if you're the rider going with the harder option, waiting for that to come to you, especially when... Banyaya had such a fantastic start and Quartara was getting messed around by the likes of Martin and, uh, well, to a lesser extent, Miller. Um, you know, it was uh, it was impressive that he didn't become flustered. And this has just been Fabio all season, more or less. Um, even when things have been difficult, the goings got tough. He has managed to keep his head, um, something that we didn't see last year. Um, but then also just something on Banyaya. I was going through the lap-by-lap the -lap analysis. Banyaya, I think, made a mistake on lap 23, set a 33.0, when the Quadraro's pace was basically 32.4, 32.3. So he gained a massive amount on that lap. But from there, Banyaya set four really consistent laps. And his final lap was just a tenth off his fastest lap of the race. So for Banyaya to do that on the soft rear right at the end showed that he was also riding really, really brilliantly well in those final four laps. Yeah, I, I uh, put all of the numbers into a spreadsheet. And in the, in from lap 12 to lap 26, Fabio Quartararo made good just over three seconds on uh, on Banyaya. Uh, obviously, as you say, that was a bit, uh, that lap, lap to 23, um, Quart or, uh, Banyaya did a 33-0 and uh, Quartararo did a 32-6. So he made good four tenths just in one lap. But still, that's a lot of time to make, uh, to make good in that. And like you say, patience, having the patience to know that your best chances to come that that really is um impressive especially for you know a young man on his way to his first ch championship who's still only 22 what about um can can Bonai keep it going though i mean i wouldn't you can't say he's got Quattararo's number because Quattararo certainly has his eyes on the bigger prize but you know going to Austin uh coming back to Mizano of course is going to be great for the Ducatis um and then Portimao Valencia uh yeah well I mean Fabio could be world champion before we've even arrived in Spain 12 points a race is what Banyaya needs uh, 12 points a race is the difference between first and fourth um and uh it would mean that Banyaya would need to re need to win the rest of the races uh, Quattararo just needs to get, I mean, basically two podiums and it's pretty much done for, um, uh, for Banyaya. Yeah. You'd have to say, Dave, that, uh, Peko doesn't need 12 points. He needs Fabio to have one bad weekend and then suddenly that's where the pressure changes. And that could happen at any of them as well. Like, obviously we've seen at different times in the past, Coda can be a real handful for anyone out there. And, uh, especially now that it's gotten bumpier and bumpier, you could easily get yourself caught out fairly easily. Yeah, I think um, Coda has to be the big question mark for, for everyone, really. We know, obviously, that Mark goes well there. Um, but I don't think it's a given that Peko's going to go to Cota and win the race. I mean, it's uh, yes, it has a, a couple of long straights for the Ducati. He's obviously going to have fantastic drive getting on there um, and top speed, obviously. But then that sort of sneaky first sector from turn two all the way down to turn nine. Um, I mean, the Yamaha should be should be great through there. Um, so I don't know. I don't think um, I don't think we can look at Austin and think, oh, you know, Banya is just going to whip Quattro there. I think it's that's far from certain. Yeah, I think the one thing about Coda that we've seen time and time again is it's a track position race, and if you're able to get to the front, you can stay at the front. So the long straight might mask an awful lot of the problems that Peko might have because you you, you do see it where overtaking so so difficult there. It's at such a premium. 
Yeah, I mean, bumpy tracks, I think, are quite bad for the Ducati, if I remember correctly. But um, uh, 2019, last time we were there, we had a Suzuki, a Yamaha and a Ducati on the podium. So, you know, make of that what you will. Yeah, it also depends on the state of the asphalt, um, you know, temperatures that we find never usually in Austin this time of year. I mean, there are, like you say, various factors. And that's why it's probably the most exciting Grand Prix left, I'd say, on the calendar from the four, uh, just purely because it's it's going to be quite unpredictable going in. Can I just say that Mark Marcus is not going to win at Austin? <laughs> Are you sure, Dave? You pinned yes. his number already. Yep. Well, I'll tell you what, the, the predictions have tended to go very well for everyone on the Paddock Pass podcast so far this season. That's right, isn't it, Neil? Uh, I said oh, yeah, Martin was going to win in Austria when no one had even mentioned his name uh, prior to going there. So I don't know why you're going to me, Steve. No no reason at all. Johan Zarko, how did he do at the weekend? <laughs> It's going to rain, okay. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Neil. Let's uh, let's move it on to your big topic of the weekend as well. What, what's your big talking point from Mizano? Um, my talking point from Mizano, Steve, is uh, we had a great fight up front for first. Um, and I think we had a really interesting fight for fourth as well, which included Joanne Mir. And I think it was interesting listening to Joanne speak after the race because he essentially said that it's all over. You know, my championship defence... Um, is uh, is going to end at the end of this season. I won't be retaining my crown, which I thought was uh, uh, an interesting admission for him to make, also a pragmatic one. Um, and yeah, I'm just interested to you know pick your brains or, or hear your thoughts on on Mir and Suzuki this year um, because it's been uh, in some ways it's been a really impressive year, but also in, in others it's been very disappointing. Um, David asked. Andrea De Vizioso on Thursday, what he had made of the season up until now. And uh, De Vizioso said one of the, his big surprises was um, the struggles of the Suzuki boys. And this was another race which was really frustrating. Suzuki, um, Mir and Rince had very strong pace on, um, on Saturday in FP4. Maybe not quite as strong as the front two, but certainly enough pace to give them something to think about. Um, yet their qualifying performances let them down again. And uh, Mir was complaining afterwards that he basically made the, the wrong front tire choice. I think he went with the uh, the medium front um, when he sort of regretted not using the hard uh, afterwards. And um, there's been a few races like that where just something, uh, some setup or, or or tire choices has kind of let him down. Um, and it's 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 kind of tough to know what to make of Mir's title defence. Um, I think in some respects he's been he's been good. He insists that he's riding better than. He ever has done. He's making less mistakes than he did last year, um, but he seems to be very frustrated and in a bit of a dour mood um, at the fact that he's not up there fighting at the very front. He doesn't really uh, give, or he isn't giving Fabio or Banyaya um, food for thought. Um, and for you know a guy that now has the mentality of a winner, um, that seems to be very tough for him to take. I think it's been pretty interesting, Neil, to hear Mia uh, attempt to call the shots now. Um, you know, building up into Suzuki, obviously won the championship with them this year. I think he's been uh, not landing jabs on the team, but also also like dictating terms to a degree. I mean, five podiums from 14 rounds, only one second place finish. You know, there, like you say, there's been a, a, a sort of a bubbling theme of frustration throughout the year, largely. Um, you know, some of his more frank or depressed debriefs have been after qualification uh, when he realizes he's got quite a lot of work to do on the Sunday. And, um, you know, it was interesting to hear him talking in Mizano of the fact that, you know, 
they he's making demands now Suzuki for next year already you know the bike the engine everything needs to be much more competitive they were the last team to introduce whole shot device and the ride height device uh, Suzuki needs to be more proactive a little bit more um, inventive um, with the, with their with their technology if they get it wrong with the with the Michelins in 2022 then I think you're going to see a very disgruntled you know former world champion um, and you'd imagine I don't know what is me now 24 25 uh, you know, not even, I don't think he's even in his mid twenties yet. I think, you know, if, you know, he's going to be, look, he's going to be a tempting target for the likes of Ducati or perhaps even Yamaha, uh, or even, you know, maybe HRC it's, uh, you know, he'll be probably the, the, the rider right at the top of everybody's shopping list for the following season. Yeah. Uh, the, um, Alex Rins was interesting because both Rins and Mir have the same problem. They qualify badly uh, and they can't qualify well because they can't get that last bit out of it. I think the whole shot device is a lot of that. It's also, or well, the rear ride height device is what we, we should call it. Um, it's also, to an extent, the balance of their bike. I think if we took, if you took all of the ride height devices off and whole shot devices off, uh, the Suzuki might end up being the best bike on the grid because it's just a really beautifully balanced package. It's fast and it handles well and it brakes well and all the rest of it. It's just that once you start adding all these bits and pieces to it, um, uh, they still haven't really figured that out and they need to do need to be able to do that. If you look at what Aprilia are doing and Ducati are doing with their automatic whole sh- uh, um, uh, ride height devices, where you you um, operate it before you uh, before corner entry uh, and. And so, and and it comes up automatically out of the um, uh, out of the corner. It just takes something out of the rider's hands, which you don't need to to, to cope with, and that that really is where Suzuki is struggling. It just shows in the times like Mir's qualifying time was a thirty-two point four, one point three seconds off uh, pole position, which was uh, a monumental effort from Banyaya. Um, but his best race lap was a one thirty-two point five. So essentially, there's one tenth difference when he's done twenty-four laps on a on a tyre in the race and uh, when he's in qualifying trim. And obviously there was a few things that went wrong. He was probably going to be able to go quite a bit faster in qualifying, but for a variety of factors. But still, it does underline that um, there just is not that. uh, You you put a new soft tyre in, there's not that area where Suzuki can jump forward uh, a couple of tenths. And we've been saying this for the best part of uh, two years now. This is nothing nothing greatly new. Um, but, um, But his frustration at the situation certainly does seem to be a bit more apparent than um, than it was at any other point. Yeah, I mean, Rin said about the Ducati, Ducati seem to have made five steps forward and the, uh, where, where Suzuki haven't. And that has been the big difference. Ducati have made a fantastic, uh, really made a fantastic job. Um, and the Ducati is looking like the best bike on the grid at the moment. And there's going to be eight of them next year. That's a lot of Ducatis to get in the way. And also, you know, even the satellite bikes are going to be GP21s. And the GP21s, very, very fast motorcycle. Yeah, no doubt uh, we'll be able to have a bit more of a discussion about that after the break. We're going to take another quick break on the Paddock Pass podcast, though. Renthal Fat Bars are synonymous with off-road world champions. The Renthal Street Fat Bar draws from decades of experience to create the ultimate 28mm handlebar in a range of street-specific bends. Whether you're looking to alter the height, width, rise, or sweep of your handlebar, Renthal Street handlebars offer a bend to suit your requirements. Use the WorksFit handlebar comparison tool at renthal.com to find the perfect bend. 
Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. Adam, we haven't heard your topic of the weekend. What's your big talking point from the San Marino Grand Prix weekend? Yeah, don't worry, Steve. It's not going to be some like big fluffy bear or a costume or, you know, the guy that presented his girlfriend with a rose in the grandstand. Um, no, it was, World Superbikes uh, takes care of all that where we get Top Cat down in Park Verme, Scott Redding proposing to his girlfriend on the podium. So don't worry about that. That's on the Superbike show. That's the real heart, the real heart of racing, that is, Steve. Um, no, I think it's more, I'd just like to highlight the fact that something that came up uh, on Sunday afternoon after the race um, and of course on Monday um, thanks to one of our colleagues uh, you know uh, on Speed Week um, Good to Weisinger you know he uh, had an interview with Carmelo Espeleta and uh, has his hands on the 2022 um, MotoGP calendar which you know unsurprisingly looks far more like a normal racing calendar uh, it's uh, starting on March the 6th in Qatar and goes all the way through to mid-November uh, everybody's favourite circuit La Valencia uh, to round things off uh, there's two new tracks involved uh, you know there's the um, Mandalika uh, if I said that correctly uh, course in Indonesia which is extremely interesting of course you know we, we're still to see any real kind of um, degree of completion when it comes to that facility. And of course, the Kimi Ring, which, you know, is now sort of two, maybe three years in uh, construction and waiting, uh, both for MotoGP and Motocross, in fact, who were due to go there in the summer for the, for the off-road. Um, aside from that, it's 21 races, um, which, you know, you would have to say in the times or the kind of twilight stages of the pandemic, fingers crossed, um, is still optimism at its best. I do wonder if there is going to be any of those Grand Prix that does fall victim to the axe simply because of um, rising cases, uh, the need to limit public events um, or spectators or whatever else. I mean, things haven't been too easy for circuits. Dave, as your intimate knowledge of Assen, um, you know, has come to bear fruit. So I just kind of like Neil was posing the question with Joanne, me and Suzuki. I just thought, what do you guys think of the prospect of 21 races if MotoGP can really make them all? Because it does seem... Uh, maybe overkill, but also maybe the promoters and the circuits, the whole organisation, everybody needs to get things going on normal again and recoup some, um, some, some cash, uh, some sponsors, and and keep the sport, you know, at the level that we sort of know it. Yeah, I mean, Dorna lost a lot of money, uh, especially last year during the pandemic. I think they did a little bit better this year, um, but. Yeah, so they need as many races as possible because the more races they get, the more um, uh, the, the the more money they get from TV broadcasters and and, and sponsors, and you know the, the the more things you know. Another Grand Prix means another title sponsor that they can get money from um, because the title sponsor pays Dorna, they don't pay the circuit. Um, so from that point of view, it's understandable, but it is the, the pressures on everyone there is getting. Very, very high because I mean, uh, even for me, just working from home, it's still five full days that you are. And when I say full days, I don't mean eight hours, I mean 18 hours, um, uh, that, that you're actually working. Uh, and for the, for the, I mean, sure, the riders get paid millions to go there, uh, to fly around the world and, and do all the rest of it. And they, they fly in private jets and, uh, a business class when it's overseas. Um, but there's a whole bunch of, uh, Dorna staff and Urta staff and team mechanics who are getting paid not very much money at all who are away from home for weeks and sometimes months at a time. Uh, the pandemic has been particularly hard on the Japanese staff because basically they live in Andorra 
for you know nine months of the year pretty much um because they can't go backwards and forwards uh so it's 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 really taking its toll i think 21 races is too much i think 20 races is too much 18 races i like i think 18 races is really good uh um i understand why dawn are doing it they get more money uh, but 20 run rate uh, 21 races it, it, you're also starting to put pressure on all of the staff involved all of the mechanics involved all of the riders involved and it it becomes more and more and more difficult yeah it is a big calendar whenever you go to 21 races and like i look at it from the perspective of whenever i was full-time in MotoGP, gp it was 18 went to superbikes at 13 i still end up doing quite a few extra events through the year to try and just get your extra work through the year as much as anything else and it takes me back up to usually about 21 22 events a year and that seems about the limit i'd want to have for something so 21 races for the season for me is probably about on that limit for us but neil obviously for for you as well like you've had it where you've had 18 races 19 races the pre-season tests it's a long season once you're in in the middle of it it is Steve, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a long season if you have all of the races in, in Europe, like we have done basically for the last year and a half. Um, but then when you start adding in new races in Indonesia and you reintroduce the race in Argentina um, and you have all the flyaways again in Malaysia, Japan, uh, Thailand, Australia, <clears throat> then it really does become quite um, quite exhausting because you're not just talking about five days away from home, you're talking about well, two, three weeks away uh, in some cases, plus a lot of exhaustion and um, jet lag and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I agree with Dave. I think 18 is, is pretty much the perfect amount. Um, I think you can have a great deal of variety um, with 18, um, but 21, I think, is... Yeah, it's it's exhausting. It's gonna be it's gonna be a long slog. Um and um yeah, I think we've talked about this before because you know, prior to the, the pandemic, we were heading in this direction anyway. Um it looked as though we were heading towards 21, 22 races pre-COVID-19, um, with new circuits and and, and new um uh, countries uh, vying to hold races around the world. Um and yeah, you just have to ask yourself. If there's more of something, does it devalue that thing? I mean, if you're seeing a MotoGP race every weekend or every other weekend all year long, does that suddenly devalue the the, the kind of the, the Grand Prix format? Um, I mean, in my opinion, it does ever so slightly. In fact, it does it does completely. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm not uh, massively in favor of uh, of having 21, 22 Grand Prix. I think that's it's it's too much too much. Yeah, I mean, just just to say that basically, uh, Dorna earns somewhere between five and ten million, depending on the um, uh, depending on the circuit per race for every race that they app. So uh, you can see why they want to do it. And those those flyaways, they're paying more. It's interesting that Samus is back on there. I mean, just to run through again to listeners who maybe haven't seen the list, uh, starting on March the sixth, then going straight to Indonesia. Then 3rd of April, it's back to Termas, which, you know, suffered a catastrophic fire. But from, you know, many people who's in the know, you know, they seem to be rebuilding the facility. Um, the 10th of April, back to Cotta, um, before the end of April, going to Portimao and then into Jerez and then the usual European season. Uh, that's a shame Bruno's not on the calendar still. Um, but, you know, Red Bull Ring, of course, their Kimi Ring, like we've mentioned, um, and it filters all the way through. I think October is probably going to be the heaviest month with uh, Motegi, Buriram, Phillip Island, and then Sepang uh, before heading to Valencia. But uh, but no sort of super surprises, really. 
Well, there might be surprises in that ad, but let's hear if there's surprises when we get our winners and losers from the San Marino Grand Prix. Dave, I'm going to kick off with you with who was your big winner? Uh, my big winner was Fabio Quartararo, but for uh, a lot of the reasons already mentioned, he got one hand on the championship. Um, sure, he finished second. He rode a fantastic race. Uh, he really put a lot of pressure on uh, uh, Banyaya, and to Banyaya's credit, he withstood that pressure. Um, but he went from uh, an advantage of 11 points a race to an advantage of 12 points a race. Uh, and it, like I say, I think... Two more podiums and the championship is pretty much done. So I think that this this was a race in which he took um, not a massive step, but certainly a significant step towards wrapping up the 2021 MotoGP championship. And how is uh, Fabio's uh, game when it comes to sunglasses, Dave? Do you approve? Um, well, he doesn't wear them in Park Ferme in uh, interviews, so I'm fine. Actually, he does. He, he actually has quite nice. Sun, I do like his sunglasses. The, the the I don't know who makes them, um, uh, and I don't want to because they're not going to give me money. Um, so uh, yeah, but I mean they are nice, and they don't uh, cover sort of three quarters of his of his face, unlike certain other riders. Well, next week on the Paddock Pass podcast, sponsored by Oakley, we will be uh, <laughs> talking to Fabio Quattararo of all people. Oakley, if you're interested. <laughs> it's all right. It's not too bright in Ireland these days anyway. We're past the summer, so I- I'm not I'm not that keen on pushing for some. Uh, Adam, what about you? Who's your big winner from the weekend? My big winner for the weekend, uh, I'm going to go for Andrea Dovizioso, Steve. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about him on the Paddock Post note show, um, you know, which you can catch on Patreon. But I think to sign that deal with a factory Yamaha, come back to MotoGP, he looked pretty sprightly in qualification okay he finished 21st i think it was 42 seconds behind Bagnaya. um you know it wasn't like a, 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 a an amazing second debut um by the italian and you know i i still think the issue of his motivation to come back to MotoGP still needs to be dissected a little bit but you know i think it was good to see dobby back uh, he's clearly more than still capable of running the speed um, and he's only going to get quicker Neil, can I ask you a question then related to Davi and his comeback? Were you the big winner from this weekend because Davi was back? If you know, I managed to keep my composure completely uh, intact, Steve, in the, the press conference on Thursday when he was welcome back. So, yeah, there were no high-pitched high squeals or uh, uh, peeing in my seat in the press room, I can tell you. Uh, I think one thing about Davi's motivation there. Uh, he has a very different, um, I mean, it's completely different for him than it is for uh, Gerloff and for Dixon, who also rode that bike. He knows that he's got a contract next year. He knows that he's got four more races after Mizano. So he's approaching it very, very differently. He's just doing it, he's doing it really, really slowly. That's a huge advantage for him. So I don't think you can judge very much by his um, race results now. I'll be interesting to see uh, what happens at Portimao or perhaps Valencia. I think Valencia is going to be a much, much better measure of what he what he can, can do because he knows the track so well and he will have had a lot more experience on the bike um, and maybe Misano too as well so um, yeah but he has a really really easy job at the moment because he know everything is already fixed it's all sorted there's no pressure on him he can ease himself into this well what about you Neil in terms of your actual big winner from the weekend apart from it being yourself obviously who was it to be the man that stood on the podium 
for the first time in MotoGP in AMAX Tunidi. Uh, we've barely mentioned him in the show so far, um, which is uh, slightly criminal, I would say, because he was uh, sensational. That's because we were waiting for you, Neil. <laughs> Neil, you're making it seem like these things aren't planned out long in advance in the Paddock Pass podcast. Now, this is unacceptable. You w- you could well be put onto the losers list for this weekend. Yeah, as don't a try and don't point out you're like some you know all-seeing doyen of the podcast and you, know, you have the authority on uh, correct predictions and verdicts. I thought that was the that was my official title, Adam. That's one of the steps, <laughs> one of the reasons for why I come onto this show because I'm known as that uh, the doyen and oracle of the podcast. But no, I think um, Bastianini is rather self-explanatory. You know, a few people were expecting him to be on the podium. I think we could we could maybe envision a, a season best result at Misano, um, but his uh, the manner of his performance was was quite ridiculous. Uh, I mean, had he not qualified in twelfth, I'm, I'm not sure whether he would have been able to run completely with Banyaya up front, but he certainly had the pace mid-race um, to be challenging the guys up ahead. Um, and it was just pretty cool to hear the likes of Marquez and Miller talk about how quick and how impressive he was when they came past him. You know, Miller was just <laughs> seemed completely perplexed and bamboozled at uh, the lean angles. And Aya was able to carry through turns 11, 12 and 13, <clears throat> those fast rides at the end of the straight. Um, and yeah, he's always been great at Misano. This has been one of his, uh, his strongest uh, tracks in in kind of the, the lower classes. One of Moto three race there, uh, Moto two race as well. Um, but um, yeah, for him just to sky through the field, we were all saying that he's going to loop it after he got up into fourth and then third. Um, but um, I loved how kind of controlled he was he said yeah you know i got into third place and i was faster than the leaders but then i just decided to roll off a little bit in the final laps because i wasn't going to be able to catch them and um i spoke to a few people from his team afterwards and there is a genuine belief that he can be fighting for the win when we go back to Mizano after coda uh, which i think for a guy on a essentially a two-year-old bike is it's quite a remarkable thing to say yeah, it was a, it was a fantastic um, performance. I, I, again, I plugged the numbers into the uh, into a spreadsheet. Um, he was basically a second slower than Fabio Quartararo in two point three seconds from laps two to eleven, and then the second half of the race, laps twelve to twenty six, because you know I you leave the, the last lap off because the the first and last lap off because it's always uh, such a, such a mess. Um, uh, but he was um, 1.3 seconds slower than uh, Fabio Quartararo, uh, but that put, it made him, you know, like uh, 1.7 seconds faster than uh, than uh, Pekka Banyaya. So he was significantly quicker than Banyaya at that point. But I don't think he had the point the the, the pace for Quartararo. But even then, for a rookie. Um, it was ju- on a really old boy bike. It was a fantastic, uh, it was a really fantastic result. Also, it builds on his result from uh, last week where he was six. So, yeah, the, the real signs of, of, of a breakthrough and some progress. Yeah, I just wanted to ask as well, like obviously this is the 14th different rider we've had on the podium this year. Last year, I think it was 14 or 15 we had as well. Bestia is also, what, the fifth Ducati rider to get a podium this season as well, Neil. We talked earlier on about Adam mentioned that there would be eight Ducatis on the grid next year. This is a clear indication of just what you can do when you've got that bike as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think I saw uh, quite a canny stat after the race which said now every spec of bike on the grid has gotten the podium. So not just every bike, but uh, every spec of bike, which is a 
which is quite ridiculous considering you know there's a 2019 M1 and a, a 2019 um, Ducati. So yeah, it does show you that it's uh, in the right hands. It can be it can be quite formidable. Um, and um, yeah, you would have to say that Bastianini and Martin they are like Bagnaia, possibly the future uh, of Ducati and looking ahead. Um, so yeah, impressive stuff. And just a quick anecdote. I mean, we know how secretive some factories are about their bikes and about their garages. And you wouldn't ever dream of going down and walking into the Ducati carriage after the race. But I went on to find Basti's crew chief and uh, asked the Avintia press officer if he was around. And he was like, yeah, just come on into the garage. And I was like, okay. And I went into the garage and everyone was having beers, having a little cheeky sig, you know, spraying champagne and shouting and singing. And um, as I was waiting, um, the press officer asked me to come and have my photo taken with the bike. So he proceeded to then take lots of photos of me standing doing the thumbs up in front of Bastianini's bike with the uh, third place trophy. And I thought, isn't this just wonderful? <laughs> We're only two garages away from the factory box, but uh, couldn't be more than a world away in terms of uh, uh, accessibility for us uh, noblemen of the fourth estate. And we will be publishing that photo on the Paddock Pass podcast <laughs> Twitter feed. So uh, please go and lend your comments. But um, I think there's, you know, what's, is there much to be said for lean angle? I mean, certainly edge grip at a place like Mizano. Uh, Dave, as, as we spoke about on the note show, Brad Binder was was somebody commenting on, on the state of the asphalt, how there was a lot of grip that was helping push the rear tyre. Um, it was actually, you know, creating issues with the front wheel. Um, but, you know, I, I actually, for the first time in two years, I was able to get out on the service road and have a look um, during FP4 on, on Saturday. And I was standing just on the outside of Turn 8. And it was really obvious how much lean angle and how much the the riders are getting off the bike in the cases of mark you know we always can see that very clearly from the tv that he lays a lot of his body off the, the side of the honda but fabio as well uh, with that very kind of um pronounced riding style that he has i mean in contrast watching valentino rossi uh going through turn eight compared to those two it was so marked really the difference in the styles um so i you know with bastianini able to you know to throw the ducati around uh, you know at his beck and call then i guess you know it was an ingredient that served him very well yeah i mean uh, uh, our friend our photographer and cormac uh, ryan mean and posted some a selection of photographs on the inside of one of the corners um with uh, you know lots of different riders and the difference in styles was just amazing you could really see all that that, that you know valentino rossi was still using this uh, I mean, he's still hanging off a lot, but it just looks really, really up, upright. It looks proper old school, and perhaps that's why he's struggling. You know, but th this is the this is the sport. The game moves on. New riders come in. They move the game. They move the way that that you have to ride, and uh, and the goalposts get moved for, for for the people who've been in the sport for a long time. Steve, who was your metaphorical winner? Uh, my winner from the weekend was actually British motorcycling because of the news about Michael Laverty and the transition from his academy into being a, a Grand Prix team. Rural Britannia. No, it's a great, uh, it's, it's a, you know, it's a great point. Steve. I'll be honest, it's to... just to give a plug to one of the Paddock Pass podcast members as well. And that can be a genuine winner rather than Neil for Davi coming back. <laughs> we need to get, you know, Michael on the show to talk about it. Cause it's, um, like you say, it's something that's could be pivotal for getting some new British talent into MotoGP. Yeah, it's the only way that it's the only way we're going to have, that we are going to you you know like promote British talent is by taking youngsters, uh, putting them on uh, in the in the world championship. T 
teaching them how to be how to race in the MotoGP, you know, in the Moto Three World Championship, uh, and then you know trying to create opportunities for them further along. Yeah, I have to say, what's been quite interesting with it is I remember when MLAV started the academy last year, and he was talking about it first. He was talking in terms of a long-term plan to get onto the Grand Prix grid, and then this opportunity has presented itself, and he's put himself in at the deep end and i think that's great to see and i think that's what's going to be big and, and positive for the long term for it so i'm sure that uh, over the next few weeks we'll be able to get mlav on and get his thoughts on it and get into a bit of detail on it um we also have losers from the grand prix weekend and i think it would be pretty much impossible for me not to put my hands in the air and say i'm the biggest loser i didn't even see any of the action from the weekend so uh other than me adam who's your big loser from the weekend um i'm gonna go for romano fanati uh, with a three-second lead in Moto3, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, almost half a lap uh, to crash at sort of turn 15, uh, going through one of those tricky left-handers, you know, after being on the right side of the tyre for most of the lap. Uh, he had a great chance to, you know, repeat his Mazzano victory um, from last year in 2020 and just before he buggers off to Moto2 next season. Um, you know, I mean, you could see the reaction both from him in, in the pit box and also from the team. It was really, you know, a, a victory that it was his to lose. I mean, he binned it short and short and sweet. I think, uh, you know, that was, uh, um, pretty hard for them all to take. And I think I loved his, uh, post-race quote as well, because I, I write sort of the text for Askavana and, um, this little kind of soundbite came through where, uh, he clearly had sent the message, you know, a good while after the race, uh, where he said uh, he was disappointed for the result, but very happy because he was able to be, uh, you know, that quick. Um, and next time out, he's hoping to repeat the first half of the race, which is great. I mean, so it's, if you can repeat the first half of the race, it's just the second half where you need to get to the flag. So, uh, you know, uh, better luck next time, Romano. What about you, Dave? Who's your big loser from the weekend? Uh, well, on Saturday night, a uh, member of the Paddock Pass podcast who uh, will remain nameless uh, predicted that Joan Zarco would uh, win the race. Um, and that was very... When, when, might I remind you, there was a forecast of rain for Sunday at 2pm. So you're wrong about the weather as well. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, a twofer. Yeah, no, but I mean, like, Sean Zarko, he qualified on the second row, qualified in fifth, had looked after sort of a fairly reasonable pace, finishes 12th, and it just seems like uh, the, the second half of the season he has um, just stalled. He's not going anywhere. That, I think, is the, 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 the that's the real problem. We're recording this on Tuesday. I think Zarko is going into the operating theatre tomorrow to have uh, arm pump surgery. He's been toying with it and saying that it's been a bit of an issue at certain tracks like uh, Austria and Silverstone. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the one of the reasons for this late um, season collapse has been has been that. I guess he's, he's looking to correct that before we go to Austin. I'm sure riding a vintage Ducati all the way down to Aragon didn't you know wonders for his arm. Sorry, is that cynical enough now? It's good to see Adam back on form. So uh, he's my big winner, actually. I'm going to change it all up. Sorry, Emlav, it's Adam refining that cynicism. Neil, what about you? Who's your big loser from the weekend? Sorry if we've already kicked him, uh, or if this is a case of kicking a man when he's when he's already done. He might have been the loser last few times out as well. But Miguel Oliveira, I mean, the guy is just, uh, he's nowhere. I'm looking at the championship table here. And before the summer break, Oliveira had a great, great run of results where he was second, first, second, and fifth. And since the summer break, he's had two known scores, 
16th, 14th, and then 20th at Misano. Um, he was pretty adamant on Thursday going into the race that um, it was just a case of having certain things line up in a row and, and go in your favour to, to kind of get back on form and, and show some potential, which would maybe take him towards where he was prior to the summer break. But, um, I, you know, I think when the season's over and, we and you know, Oliveira does a, a debrief with us and tells us, you know, where it all went wrong, I'm pretty sure that the wrist injury that is sustained in Austria will play a lot more prominent role in uh, proper analysis of the season. I think he's maybe playing that down and down. He has to be because it's just, it's, it's quite ridiculous. He's got literally gone from one of the strongest men, one of the two or three strongest guys in the class to not even being able to buy a point. Just to say, I mean, Miguel obviously hasn't had too much support from his team's title sponsor because, um, you know, rather than giving him wings, um, MotoGP managed to take one of them away. So the fact that he had his the left the left winglet snapped off the bike in the third lap on uh, sorry in the third corner on the first lap, pretty much conditioned his race. Just speaking specifically about Misano, but you're right, Neil. It's um, it's a pretty turgid run at the moment. Yeah, there have been rumours that, I mean, he just seems really, really unhappy with the whole situation. There have been rumours about him, um, you know, looking to make a move once he gets out of his contract. Uh, you know, Brad Binder was already signed up through, I think, 2024. Uh, so, yeah, he, he doesn't look like he, he doesn't look like he's necessarily going to be with KTM for uh, the, the, the long term. Well, I think that uh, nicely wraps us up from the uh, Mizano Grand Prix. And uh, obviously, we were also going to be busy on the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Rental Street. We've got the Moto2 and Moto3 show coming up later this week. Myself and Gordo will recap the action from the Catalan round the World SBK. And I'm quite excited for that show because I've actually seen the races. So that should mean that I can... Uh, be involved in some of the discussion um, and uh, we've obviously got uh, then next weekend we've got the Hareth World SBK as well so it's a busy time on the Paddock Pass podcast going forward Can you tell me Steve that when you were commentating on the World Superbike races you weren't also watching MotoGP at the same time I mean that's, that doesn't really that doesn't really go in hand in hand with normal Steve English behaviour normally you've got the American football on one side of the room you've got the I don't know, some obscure Irish road race on the other side. Uh, the NFL. MXGP I'll, I'll was be, on I'll as well. I'll be honest, I was just transfixed by the Supersport 300 race that was ongoing at the same time. So until the next time the Paddock Pass podcast, big thank you to David Emmett, Neil Morris and Adam Wheeler for joining us on today's show. And uh, make sure to check out patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast to become a supporter of the Paddock Pass podcast. And on that, you can subscribe to our Paddock Notes show for $10 a month and that'll get you up to date on each day of a Grand Prix weekend. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. It looked like there were really good races in World Superbikes and I didn't get to see enough of it, so um, fucking annoying. Never mind. <laughs>